The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. that music? It's among the favorites of our guest today. He's an IT professional and also a part-time life coach that has written numerous articles on film music for magazines such as Soundtrack and Music from the Movies. I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming Stephen Wilson to the program. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Frank. Good to talk to you. Same here. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, full disclosure here, Stephen and I are, are uh, I guess you would call us Facebook friends. We've never, ever met. In fact, we've never even talked before today, but we seemingly know each other really well just because of our interactions on Facebook and our and our mutual love of film music. Uh, so I know a lot about you, but our audience probably doesn't. So I was wondering if you could maybe start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, you know, growing up and family and work history and things like that. Sure, sure. Um, well, I, I grew up in a in a mining town in the north of England, uh, a town called Barnsley, and you know, at, at the point that I was growing up there, which was in the seventies, uh, mining, coal mining was its main industry. Uh, but I never fancied that, and I really got attracted to some of the escapism that was available, you know, on television and in the movies. And of course, we're talking about the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. So on television, we are talking about things like Star Trek. Uh, we are talking about the first run of things like the James Bond movies on TV, certainly on British TV. And of course, in the movies, you know, we had that was the decade of Star Wars. It was the decade of Jaws. It was, uh, you know, just slightly before the decade of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, you know, it was a time of rich escapism. And, you know, being the kind of kid, I didn't want to really go down into the coal mines. Mm-hmm. So I uh, studied hard at school uh, and, um, you know, enjoyed all this escapism and, when it came for me to do my degree, I chose computing. Uh, I, I strongly suspect that you know Star Trek was an influence in that. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I started out in a career in um, computing alongside uh, collecting movie soundtracks, which is the the thing that I fell in love with. And yeah, that was a uh, going into computing was a rather smart thing. I mean, you were that was in the very early stages of popularity for that type of profession, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, at the time that I was getting into it, it was a, a specialized profession. It's becoming, uh, you know, we're getting to the stage now where uh, most of our young people uh, are really good with this stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of highly talented people out there. But certainly at the time that I was getting into it, when computing was certainly very different uh, to what it is now, uh, the skills were scarce. 
Didn't you? Let me guess here. Let me I'm dating myself. Fortran COBOL. Did you have to? Did you have to use like little cards and stuff to, to program? I, I just came in after the era of cards and. Uh, oh, okay. Well, you're older. Uh, I, I, I'm older I, than you then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I escaped that era. Now, at the time that I came into it, uh, industry was almost exclusively uh, mainframe computing with green, you know, green screen. Uh, dumb terminals and a lot of the programming was in COBOL uh, by that time um, you, you know in the very early parts of my career you know Unix started to become uh, a thing in industry it was already a thing in academics I, I learned on Unix systems um, and they were coming into industry about that time and because um, you know because my generation knew Unix and C and those kinds of things then you know I was well placed to um you know, to make some traction with, with these technologies as they go into industry. Okay. Okay. Uh, any, uh, any family connections? Are you, are you married? Have a family, something like that? I do. I'm, uh, I'm married to Janet. She's a biomedical scientist working uh, in the Maidstone hospital. Uh, she does a really important job, way more important than mine, really. <laughs> uh, you know, she, she works in the, in the laboratories to help, um, to help consultants figure out what, kind of cancer people might have so that they choose the right therapy uh for that patient so you know really important job really stressful job too for her i have to say Uh, you know it's fabulous and she's doing a great thing for the world yeah well let's um let's go ahead and dive into your list i love your list of choices It, it really diverse and, uh, and our connection is that we both share a love of John Barry. So, but I don't want my listeners to worry. This isn't going to be a John Barry fest. It's going to be represented. It's going to be represented. But uh, you have a really a wide variety of, of choices here. So I'm really delighted to dive into this. The first one we were going to dive in is by another favorite composer of mine, Jerry Goldsmith. This is a, a cue from the film The Omen. You want to tell us a little bit about why you uh, chose that as one of your favorites? Absolutely. Uh- I mean, I mentioned that I go into film music uh, in the 70s, principally through things like Star Wars and James Bond movies. But I have to say, the first time I watched a movie and immediately thought I have to get that soundtrack album was with The Omen. Now, you know, I'm sure Jerry Goldsmith himself and many of Jerry's fans would say that of that particular trilogy of films, the final conflict is the masterpiece. But I have to tell you that, that I've rarely had that kind of reaction to a film like I had with The Omen. And it was entirely down to the music. Those simple opening piano notes, they set the hairs on the back of my neck up. And then when wow. the voices came in, then I just went wild. You know, it was literally the first time I felt compelled to go and find a soundtrack album. And that's why I wanted to include this on the list. Oh, what a great story. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's hear it for ourselves. Uh, let me think here. The, is the cue called uh, Ave Santini? Is that how it's pronounced? Ha! Ave Satani. And, and this Satani. is the opening title version. I chose the opening title version because that's that's what set my hairs on the back of my head, uh, on, back of, on the back of my neck, raising. Okay, perfect. Well, let's have a listen by the maestro Jerry Goldsmith from the film The Omen.
you've, you've kind of alluded to it already, but I'm still going to ask the question because I think you could probably expand on it a little bit. So escapism is what struck me as your interest in films, and, and I guess the film music was connected to that in, 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 in some sort of way. So maybe just talk to me a little bit more about what, what led to your interest in in film music in particular, not just sure. the films, but, but in the music. Sure. Well, um, I mean, you're right. It, you know, it, it was originally the escapism which grabbed me, and I, and I can point to, to probably three things in particular. Uh, now, the first one might surprise you. When I was a little boy, I used to come home from school, and I used to watch the Star Trek animated series. I didn't even know that there was a live-action series at that point. I thought it was just a cartoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I loved that theme tune. Uh, I was ever so delighted when, when La La Land Records finally managed to put that out. Um, you know, when I eventually discovered there was a live-action version of it, you know, I, I, I just went wild. Um, the second thing I can point out is Goldfinger. I distinctly remember Goldfinger's first run on British television. It was a major, major television event at the time. Uh, and although I couldn't, you know, I, I was too young to be conscious of names like John Barry and Leslie Bricasse and, and um, you know, uh, Shirley Bassey, mm-hmm. I nevertheless instinctively knew that a lot of the exciting experience I was getting from that movie was coming from the music. And the third I can point to is, of course, Star Wars. You know, so um, when our final, when our family finally got a record player, as we called them then, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, my dad asked me what, what, you know, I could have a record. What record did I want? And, um, you know, I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, I wasn't really into the pop music at the time. I wasn't really into classical music. I said, dad, I want an album of James Bond themes. And, you know, he went out and he got me big Bond movie themes, the Jeff Love album, and I played that thing to death. <laughs> um, the second thing I got was was the Star Wars soundtrack because I also wanted that. But the interesting thing is, though, Frank, is that you might think that I was I was already into getting soundtrack albums, but actually for a long time they were the only two I actually had. I think the next real prompt I had was 1979. Uh, when I experienced Moonraker, Star Trek, the motion picture, and the black hole, pretty much back to back. Of course, there was also Alien that year, but I was too young to see Alien. So, But I had those three movies. And again, I remember going back to the black hole two or three times. It was 50p uh, to get into the cinema, 50 pence, you know, uh, or, or 60 pence if you wanted to go into the circle, because you know these were the days when there were still schools <laughs> and circles. And I remember going back two or three times to try and memorize the music. And it never even occurred to me to actually try and buy the soundtrack album. It was only after my experience with The Omen, uh, where I actually tried to find that soundtrack album, that I realized all this stuff was out there. I I realized, because I started getting catalogs from soundtrack specialists, and we realizing, oh, my God, I can actually get the Black Hole. I can actually get the Thunderball soundtrack. You know, Mm. I I didn't have to just get these compilation albums. and, And that's where it all went wild for me. You know, and and for our younger listeners, I suspect you, same reason as me, is why it really became vitally important for film music in those days. Unlike today, where you can turn on your TV and, and stream whatever movie you want, or, or flip in a DVD or a Blu-ray and watch whatever movie you want. And in those days, you couldn't do that. You'd have to wait for either a re-release in the theaters or... Uh, or like you say, eventually it would you know, find its way on a television maybe 10 years after it was released or something like that. The only way you could really relive the movie was through the music. And, it, and it, it, at least for me, mm. it, it well, helped me relive it, you know. Well, exactly. And, and this is one of my theories 
uh, and it, it's probably nonsense, but, but I still put it forward as a theory anyway, as to one of the reasons why film music has changed over the years, because, you know, in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, where you got to see a film once at the cinema, and if you really loved it, you could go back to the cinema to see it. But who knew when you were going to be able to see it again? It wasn't going to be in the shops in six months' time. It might right. be on television in five years' time, and you might even miss it on television in five years' time. So, you know, pretty much the only way to take that movie home with you in those days was to buy the picture book and buy the soundtrack album. And yeah. I think that made soundtrack albums really, really important. You know, you think about uh, a soundtrack from album for a really popular film like Thunderball, you know, taking that album home and buying the picture book was really the, the, the pretty much the only way you could take that film home with you. And when that's true, I think that puts a, um, a mandate on that music to become musical, to have those strong, distinctive themes, those strong, mm. distinctive flavors, and those strong, distinctive statements. Now, we now live in an era where the soundtrack album no longer serves that purpose. You know, the soundtrack album is, is really just people who, who um, you know, love the music and want to take the music apart from the film, but it's no longer the only way to take the, the movie home. And mm. I think for that reason, there is now less of a mandate uh, to have those strong themes, those strong flavors, those strong statements. Uh, that's not to say that, that modern film music you know, never goes in that direction. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying that the commercial uh, and, and artistic drivers on film music have changed with the economics of, of how we experience movies. Yeah, no, that, that's spot on. A, a great observation. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, your your next choice is a is a, a particular favorite of mine, which I don't think has been on the program yet. I'm talking about the main titles from a not a very well known film, at least here in the states, called uh, Walkabout, and it's a, a theme written by uh, by our our hero John Barry. Tell us a little bit about and from his you know big catalog, you could have chosen also this one in particular making your list. Well, the thing about this is, okay, so my stories, I start off with, with, with blockbusters of my era, because as you grow up and uh, you discover things like uh, love and loss and, you know, the, the range of emotions that, that are more adult oriented, if you like, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I've started to, to become more attracted to films which, which had more meaning. Um, and I came across Walkabout. Uh, you know, I, I'd already, I got, I got to the point where I realized I was a John Barry fan and I wanted more John Barry albums. Um, and what I used to do is I used to uh, scan the Radio Times, which was our TV and radio listings magazine here in the UK, for, for films by comp you know, with scores by composers that I, uh, that I loved. And I, I remember you know, catching Walkabout. Uh, we just got our first VHS recorder, so I, I recorded on VHS, and then I transferred the soundtrack onto a cassette, played that thing to death. <laughs> um, and think about Walkabout in particular. I mean, there is nothing better, in my opinion, than a wonderfully photographed film accompanied with a wonderful score. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes you have great scores on average films, um, but on that rare occasion where, where you have a wonderfully spiritual story, which is what Walkabout is, beautifully photographed and oh, yeah. at the same time you know that is gold and I, and I still insist to this day that walkabout and another of my choices down the line uh, are are two of the most perfect marriages of photography and music and you know one of the interesting things here frank just before we get into the tune is that 
Walkabout is a really simple tune. You know, it's not it's not this great big grand thing that's really busy and really noisy and really fast and throws the kitchen sink at you. Right. It's a really simple tune. But do you know what? It may be my favorite piece of music in all of film music. It really wow. yeah, because it touches me in in a way that a lot of more complicated and busy music does not. I would encourage anyone to watch it. You know, if you haven't mm-hmm. seen it before, I don't think it's uh, widely popular here in the States, but I would encourage anybody to watch it and also to listen to it, which brings us to where we need to go. Let's quit talking and start listening. This is the, uh, the main title from the film Walkabout, written by the maestro John Barry. Okay, so you're you're growing up and you've taken an interest in film music and now you're starting to find out that all these albums are out there and you're buying them. It's it, like any fan. That's that's yeah, that's normal. But you went a little bit further and you actually became very active uh, as time went along. Became very active in in writing about film music, whether it be reviews, I guess, or just or opinions or having discussions back and forth on the internet. What, what kind of had you, uh, what led you to take that leap to get into 
uh, writing about it and actually in putting your opinions and your thoughts out there. Yeah, well, I mean, we're still we're still before the era that the internet really took off. The internet at the time that I started doing this was still just in universities. So mm-hmm. you, you had online um, you had online discussion groups which were very text based, but you know it was a minority of people using them. And I wanted to be an evangelist. You know, I wanted to I wanted to shout out about this music that I loved. Um, so I. I remember I used to go into a shop in Leeds uh, in Yorkshire called uh, it was called Discount Soundtracks then it became a, a movie boulevard which was run by two guys that I really love uh, you know Robert Wood Richard Jolly you know they could tell some tall stories and sometimes you had to be on your guard to tell the tall stories from the truth but <laughs> you know, they, they were lovely guys and 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 they you know they would play me anything I wanted to hear uh, you know, they would tell me anything that I wanted to know. And um, and for a time, they had a guy there uh, who was writing for Soundtrack. And he said, why don't you just write some reviews and send them off? So I did. I wrote them, got them typed up, and I sent them off to Luke van der Ven, um, who uh, I remember he sent me a letter back. Remember, this is before emails. It was a, it was a typed letter. And, and he said that, uh, you know, he, he compared himself with, with, with a cigar-chomping producer always looking for new talent. I always remember that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, you know, he ran my reviews. He said, I'd, I'd like to take more of them if you can do them. And wow. you know, after a time, I, I got to start doing interviews. I started to do features. You know, I, I did a, I did a, a, a photo pullout of John Barry's 1999 London concert. Uh, I did um, a couple of interviews with David Arnold. Uh, and in fact, it was an interview. In, you know, in fact, here's a little anecdote. I, I interviewed David Arnold by phone the day after the 9-11 attacks. And, oh, wow. Um, um, you know, I, I've, I've never, I, I never used the interview in the end. Uh, and, I, and in fact, uh, I'm sorry to say, I don't, I, I still, I don't think I've got the cassette anymore either. Huh. Uh, but um, but it, it, it was, uh, but the mood at the time was we were all in shock about what, would ha- what, what had happened. And I remember David saying to me, you know, that, they, that they'd been talking around in the studio, sort of looking at each other and sort of saying, you know, this doesn't matter. You know, this doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, you know, anyway, I, I, that, that's a little sideline. But I started doing interviews. I started doing features. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was lo- it started because the Internet still wasn't around. And, and, and it was pretty much the only way to communicate your passion. And um, and I kept going it even when the Internet was around for a period of time. I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing it now. Uh, but it led to some things. It led me to writing uh, sleeve notes for Silver Screen's re-recording of Walkabout. It led mm. to me doing uh, liner notes for the first film score monthly release of King Kong. So, you know, it, it was a lovely thing to get involved with. I, You know, and I'd forgotten you'd written those liner notes. That's right. Wow. I mean, that's – and this strictly from someone who wasn't, you know, a, a trained journalist or a trained film critic or something like that. Just a – ordinary fan who loves writing about it yeah it's quite an accomplishment really when you think about it oh bless you frank thank you for that <laughs> oh no it is i mean I, I well i would love to do that because i was going to hold it off but it, it 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 makes sense to ask it here so when i've read some of your pieces i it, it sounds to me like you you understand music unlike me i'm a i i don't understand you know i i can't talk about music in any kind of technical sense are you a musician? Do you play an instrument? or? I, I don't play, and, and I can't actually read uh, music, but I, I do know some of the terminology. You know, I, I, I know the difference between a, a broken chord and an arpeggio, for example. But I, I, I don't actually read music, and I don't actually play it. Huh. But yeah, you, you seem to be able to 
sound pretty intelligent in talking about it. So I mean, it's I know some of the terminology, you know, and I, and I can count out the time. You know, I can recognize when it's three, four, 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 five, four. You know, I can do those kinds of things, but but okay. I don't actually well play now. Yeah. Well, I talked about the diversity in your list. Uh, the next one we were going to talk about is from a film called The Curse of Frankenstein. And this is going back, I don't know, hopefully you'll know the year, but this would be going back quite a ways because I, I think, uh, who's the composer on this? I, maybe I'm this is James Bernard. Yeah. Okay, James I mean, Bernard. Well, tell us a little bit about including that on your list. Yeah, and it's from about uh, 1957 or 1958. Simply, Frank, I love Hammer horror movies. I mean, okay. again, uh, when I was growing up, there was a tendency to put Hammer horror movies on Friday nights or Saturday nights. You know, they would have seasons like, uh, you know, the Saturday night horror movie or whatever it was. And the thing I loved about these Hammer movies is because they were slightly pantomimic, because they were um, theatrical, and although there was blood, you know, they, they weren't nasty. You know, it, it was like, um, you know, they, they were lovely, legendary stories, you know, colorfully told that never got nasty. And, and I just fell in love with them. And, you know, and James Bernard is a composer that, that I always like to shout about. Um, I mean, I, I've loved many, many, many of his film scores and indeed scores of other Hammer composers, but I chose The Curse of Frankenstein because it is right back at the beginning, and also because you know my friend and uh, you know another guy that I love to death, you know James Fitzpatrick, uh, you know just re-recorded it, and and uh, you know I'd love to give that a platform. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. Uh, this is, uh, and and by the way, I, I want to say we've had a guest here recently talked about the Hammer films as well, so I know you're not alone on that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Let's have a listen to this. This is a uh, main titles again, and this is from the film called The Curse of Frankenstein. back to your uh, career for a minute 
here you are, an IT professional, I guess working as an employee, and then you decided to start doing contract work, uh, and, and then also decided, you know what, I've always been interested in this being a life coach and helping coach people to improve their lives and their performance. And what kind of led, I mean, you're talking about some pretty major changes uh, and how you go about uh, your day job, as it were. I mean, tell us a little bit about what went into your thinking to do that. Well, I mean, the coaching goes back to about 2005. Uh, I mean, what happened is I got to the stage where, where I was showing management potential and consulting potential. So I started to get training in that line. And of course, a lot of that kind of communication, sorry, a lot of that kind of training is communication skills um, and, and management skills. And of course, one of them, the way, one of the styles of management is a coaching style. So I, I got taught that professionally. Uh, and I just found that, that people would seek me out and sort of say, look, you're pretty good at talking to people about these things. Can I talk to you about these things? And can you coach me on this? Um, and then, and I had a tendency to suffer from stress. I don't mind admitting it. And, you know, a friend of mine recommended to me that I start learning uh, information from a field called neuro-linguistic programming or NLP. Uh, mm -hmm. I got well into that. Now, you may have figured something out about me, Frank. If I get into something, I get into it big. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I did you know, practitioner trainings, master practitioner trainings, trainer trainings, advanced master practice. You know, I, I did the whole hog. Uh, I studied, I, I sought out trainers. And I got to the stage where, where I was you know, doing an IT career, but I was also massively trained in this ability to coach people. And I loved doing it. You know, it was a great counterpoint uh, to, to the kind of work I was doing, you know, in IT, uh, in corporate land. So... Right. You know, I just decided to do both. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'd go out and do an IT contract and maybe do some coaching in the evening. If it was a really hectic IT contract, I might suspend the coaching for a while. And then when I came out of the contract, I'd do more coaching. You know, so I, th these things kind of leapfrog mm. each other with me. You know, they kind of both exist at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it still takes a lot of courage to do that. I mean, it can be really easy to kind of just stick with status quo you know and just whatever's working for you and, and working in the corporate world so it's uh i'm always interested in hearing people's stories about why they decide to kind of branch out and do contract work or even you know switch careers and do something entirely different so that's uh, that's great that you're able to do that um another one of your films that you chose uh is another favorite of mine that oh, lo and behold here we are back to john barry this is a uh, as I recall, the first X-rated film ever nominated for Oscars, I think. Uh, we're talking about the film Midnight Cowboy, uh, which I think came out in 1969, 1970. Uh, let us in a little bit on your uh, thinking of including that on here on your list of favorites. Well, I mean, when I first saw that film, you know, it, it was like, you know, it was devastating. I mean, the... You know, I'd been so used to these blockbuster movies, but here I saw a film which was a strange kind of a love story uh, because it was kind of a love story between two men. Not that they were, you know, they weren't homosexual or anything. Right. But, but, but there was a love story there, uh, a sort of a platonic love story. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, 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 it challenged me. It, it um, you know, it, it even confused me in some respects. Uh, but the ending you know, just, just destroyed me. Uh, you know, it always moves me, the ending. And what I love about the music in that movie is this is one of the rare few examples where I think instrumental music and popular songs work together beautifully uh, to, to create a soundscape for this picture. 
Uh, and one of the reasons I want to showcase it is because when we think about film music, we tend to think about these orchestral scores with 80 players and horns and strings and all that kind of stuff. But of course, film music is way, way more diverse than that. And, it, and I'm not even just talking about jazz. You know, here you have an instrumental score, which essentially comes from pop, to be to be quite frank. You know, it's sort of like a pop fusion with with, with a sort of a ballad style of writing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's formed by an orchestra, but but it doesn't come from that, you know, that tradition of, of you know, Max Steiner or Congo. It doesn't come from that tradition. And I just think that, that the theme that John created uh, for this movie is perfect. And I spoke to him about it once. He told me, uh, and I think this revealed a lot about how he thinks and works. He said to me, he came up with that theme relatively quickly. Uh, and if you actually take each, each line of that theme, it's simple, dead simple. It's, you know, the, the beauty isn't in any kind of complexity in the themes. But it's how they layer on top of each other and interplay with each other. That's what creates the magic. And uh, and I chose to include the, the film version uh, rather than the album version here, only because the, the, the film version hasn't been commercially released. Uh, and it is quite a lot different from the from the album version. And I think it, it, it's worth hearing all by itself. Yeah. And I wonder, do you have any insight as to, not the first time, it's happened. Do you have any insight as to why sometimes there is a uh, a different version in, in the film versus what's released on the album? I mean, either I, about this particular example or any others, because there's numerous ones out there. Well, well, sometimes re-recordings happen for economic reasons. I mean, there's been a period in in the American film uh, in in the American film music industry where if you wanted to release uh, a film score on album, you had to pay the orchestra again anyway. Well, if you're going to have to do that, you may as well record it again and record. Hmm. A version of it which is customized for album listening and that counts for things like Capricorn One for example where where Jerry Goldsmith slightly modified some of the cues to make them more album friendly and record them again same with Damien Omen 2 is another example now that didn't happen in England things that were recorded in England didn't have that kind of restriction which is why you got the original version of the Omen on LP rather than a re-recording in this particular case I don't I don't know specifically why it was re-recorded maybe it was something to do with um, the ability to, to use Toots the Element on the harmonica. Maybe, you know, maybe they didn't have permission to put him on album or something. I don't know. Mm. Um, the other possibility, though, is that, that the film version of the theme is actually quite short. And I guess that they figured that they needed to, to extend that to, to, to achieve something close to a three-minute runtime to make that it work. Make, it may well yeah, be that. that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it should be pointed out, you, uh, uh, John Barry was the music supervisor on this film as well, meaning that he was very heavily involved in choosing the pop tunes that yeah. were used in the film that you talked about. And I want to say, I'm trying to think, were they were, they, were the songs actually written for the film? I mean, with the exception of Everybody's Talking, because that had already existed. But I want to say that some of these songs were actually created for the film. Or maybe I'm well, wrong on that, you know? They were certainly tailored for the film. I mean, my, my recollection of things that I've heard is that if you take Everybody's Talking, for example, it was a pre-existing song. But but I believe that they went in the studio and recorded different lengths of the, of, of different sections so that mm. they put it in the movie. Uh, I think other songs were commissioned specifically for the film. Of course, there there is the famous story of of um, that you know uh, Bob Dylan uh, may well have uh, written uh, the song, but circumstances worked against it. Uh, and you know it worked out perfectly as it is, in my opinion. Yeah, let's have a listen. This is the uh, the main theme 
from Midnight Cowboy. In particular, it's the main theme from the from the film, not from the album. Uh, once again, written by John Barry. As, as we're going through this list, I'm noticing a pattern here. It seems to me that practically all your choices, well, not, not a, a big portion of them are from the 70s or, or before. Mm. Mm. Is there is there a is there a reason for that? I think the 60s and the 70s are the two eras of films and music that I love most. Um, and I would say that the that, that the 50s and the 80s, which of course are, are you know, which bracket those two decades, are probably where I would go next. I, I love, I, I do love some older movies, but when it comes to movies and film music, you know, the combination of, of film and music, you know, my heart is really in the 60s and the 70s. That that's where the stuff is that I really do love most. Yeah. Um. Uh, we'll get into it later. Because I'd like to ask about the, the current state and that sort of thing. Mm. You were talking about uh, older films. The next one uh, that you've highlighted, I can't remember what year this is. Fahrenheit 451. What? When, when, when was that released? My recollection is that's around about 1966. It's after the split with Hitchcock. Okay. Okay. Uh, written by another well-known composer that was extremely pro prolific in the early days of Hollywood, uh, Bernard Herrmann. Mm. I don't know which cue this is. Uh, it might be the main titles. So tell us a little bit about uh, including this uh, on your list of favorites. Yeah, well, you know, I when I when I was in my early stage of collecting film music uh, records, I remember going into a, a record shop and buying uh, the fantasy film music album by Bernard Herrmann. And I instantly fell in love with it, and I just wanted to to get more Bernard Herrmann. Now, in fact, Frank, there are, there are two composers that that I will buy anything by them without question. One's John Barry, one's Bernard Herrmann. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, because I, I trust those composers; they they always please me. Uh, I, I just love Herrmann, and in fact, you know, I often say, Frank, if, you know, sometimes people would ask me a question like, "Who do you think is the best film composer?" And I would always answer in this way: I think that the greatest film composer of all time is John Williams. 
I think that the best film composer of all time in terms of his undeniable range and facility is Jerry Goldsmith. I think the most important film composer of all time is Bernard Herrmann. And my mm. favorite is John Barry. You know, that's the way I always put it. But I, I honestly think though, if you're going to study what music can do for a film, I think it's most important to study Bernard Herrmann. And I'm not just saying that academically. You know, Bernard Herrmann really, really touches the emotions. I just love the way he writes. The piece I selected isn't actually the main title. It's actually a piece from within the film, uh, which I think showcases that ability to, to, to really touch the emotions and do it without getting you know, overly busy. And the other, the other reason I wanted to select this is that you know, in, in London right now, there is a uh, the Red Shoes Ballet is going round. It, it's a re-release, if you like, um, if you can use that phrase with a ballet. You know, it's not the first run. But mm -hmm. of course, that is famously uh, scored with, with Bernard Herrmann's film music from Citizen Kane, um, from um, Hangover Square, The Ghost of Mrs. Mill, Fahrenheit 451. And the piece I've selected is one of the pieces that I think is especially effectively used in that ballet. So that's mm. why... How how far does his career go back? Now you you mentioned uh, Citizen Kane. So what are we talking about? Back to the 30s or the 40s? Uh, not quite 30s. I, I think Citizen Kane was, was sort of early mid 40s. I can't remember the exact year. No. Uh, Kane. But you know he is the one composer that will take me. Well, I say the one composer. He will take me right back. Now don't get me wrong. I I do love a lot of you know early film music. You know like King Kong by Max Steiner. You know who cannot love that. Uh, you know, a lot of the early film scores, Franz Waxman, Bride of Frankenstein. I do love a lot of older film music. But you are right to notice, though, that, that, that the 60s and the 70s are the, the era that I'm most excited about. Yeah. Well, and by the way, I I kind of agree with you on that. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I've never even tried to put together my own top 10 list. But but if I did, I, I would not at all be surprised that it all kind of gathered around the, those two decades. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is a cue from the uh, film, 1966 film, Fahrenheit 451, written by the maestro Bernard Herrmann. <laughs>
you've been so terrific with your answers. I've almost run out of questions. You've you've <laughs> kind of answered two or three questions I had planned at the uh, to begin with. I'm trying to think where I was. Oh well, since we were talking about the the uh, music of the '60s and '70s, and and I think you also did a nice job where the state of soundtrack albums are these days and those sorts of things. Let's talk about the state, the current state of music mm. uh, in films. And, and I'll be honest with you. I, I don't, in fact, I don't even, I can't even remember the last time I bought a, a, a soundtrack from a, from a recent film. It, no. It's gotta be at least 10 years or more. I well, mean, I just, I'm just, I'm totally out of it. And I don't know why I, I was so tied to Barry and, and secondarily to Goldsmith that when their output stopped, it was kind of like I just didn't I wasn't interested anymore. And I and I don't know why. I, maybe you can shed some light on that for me. Well, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I had to stop writing, to be honest, because I couldn't muster the same level of enthusiasm uh, at the time. Now, you know, there are modern film scores that I love. For example, I absolutely adore Inception by Hans Zimmer, you know, uh, and. You know, I absolutely adore some of what Michael Giacchino is doing, for example. But but it, it has changed. Uh, I mean, you know, you imagine going back to like 1968, 1969, you could see Midnight Cowboy, Lion in Winter, On Our Majesty's Secret Service, Once Upon a Time in the West. You could see, you know, you could go to the cinema practically every week and experience film score. I do think that, that modern film music is great in the sense of that it's, it's absolutely serving the film and, and, and its needs. But of course... The summer blockbuster these days, you know, they're trying to outcompete each other on being bigger, on being more hyperactive. And and to some extent, I think, it, you know, to, to, to use a, a metaphor, it, it's like we've forgotten how to make love with our movies. It's like we just want to jump straight in at the climax and keep the climax going for two hours. And that doesn't work. <laughs> That's boring, to be frank. You know, you yeah. think, you know I've often thought that a good piece of music and a good uh, film you know, has that that sort of sense of seduction, foreplay, build up, climax, come down, um, you know, and and the, the big cuddle up afterwards, you know, yeah. and and I sometimes think that 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 that's kind of you know gone in this this in this desire to provide you know instant gratification for every minute of a two hour movie. Now I think there are some fabulous composers working in film. Uh, you know, I, I just think that that the demands of cinema these days are about, you know, the, the, in my opinion, they're just way too much, you know, the Dolby thud of doom, too much great grand choir of the apocalypse, you know. Um, I, I, it's, it's, I, I feel like film music is often uh, just competing with other film music to be bigger, noisier, and more, you know, calamitous. Well, what I find interesting, and you kind of alluded to it, is, is how often... Uh, there's almost music throughout the entire movie, and that actually that actually uh, distracts me, or I, well, I, I, it starts uh, to irritate me a little bit. You know, it's it, there was one thing I always liked about Barry's approach to films is that by and large he was pretty economical with music. Yeah, uh, I think he should be. You know, because I mean, the, the joke that I make is, is that nowadays every two hour every two hour movie's got three hours worth of music in it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and the thing is when how can I put this? Emotionally, we work by contrasts. Now, if you haven't had a music cue for a little while and then one kicks in, you know it means something. 
um, right. you notice it. But when music's going all the time, it just becomes white noise. And you can have a great rhythm going and you can have fabulous drumming going on, fabulous uh, fanfares and all this kind of stuff. But, but if it's going on all throughout the movie, it just becomes white noise. It actually becomes boring. You know, you, you, and this is the paradox. You've got three hours of exciting music that becomes boring because you're not getting that kind of variety. I think you do need moments of, of, of silence on the music track uh, so that when the cues do come in, uh, they, you actually feel something. Right. You know, I sometimes think that, that the escalation in film music to be bigger and noisier is because we're becoming more and more desensitized to it. If you want to resensitize to it, you actually have to pair it back, get smaller, get more sparse again. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, and stop with the big sound effects too. I mean, it's yeah. It, it, some of the technology is actually, I think, while it's it, it's amazing to watch and hear, and certainly been able to do things that wouldn't even been thought of before. It, it it's almost detracting from the the more traditional ways of filmmaking. But that's yeah. that's for that's for another day. Let's um. Let's go back again. I want to say, let me think. I'm pretty sure it's mid 1970s, and I, I love this film as well, as well as the score. He's 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 in my probably my top five six composers. We're, we're the film we're talking about is uh, Enter the Dragon, mm. and the uh, composer Lelo Schifrin. Yeah, I believe this is the main title that you uh, have highlighted. Uh, yeah, talk us through this. I mean, this is a well, <laughs> it, 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 it's it's such a shame that this was the only mainstream movie that Bruce Lee did, but at least at least it was a terrific one that had all the pieces needed for a great film, the score included. So tell us a little bit about about your including this. Yeah, well, you know, when when VHS became a thing in the early to mid eighties, you know, Bruce Lee movies got a caught a second wind of life, mm. uh, and I watched these Bruce Lee movies, and I'll tell you, you know. I know that there are guys out there whose action is faster and more hard-boiled and all that kind of stuff, but nobody to this day has got the the physical fighting charisma of Bruce Lee. Mm. Um, you know, there's something about the way uh, he times his movements, uh, the, you know, the little pauses, the, the, the variations in rhythm that made him uniquely exciting to watch. Uh, I loved, uh, you know, Bruce Lee movies. And, uh, and, you know, and, and, I, and I think they're brilliantly scored, too. I mean, I love, I mean, there are two scores that we know about from his first film, The Big Boss. You know, there, there's the Joseph Koo score, which, which, you know, was in Asia. And then there was the re-score that was done for the European release. But, you know, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon, Game of Death, of course, which we had John Barry again on. Right. Uh, you know, all great scores. And, and by the way, here's a little anecdote uh, for you, uh, you know, I used to get this Kung Fu magazine, and I remember reading <laughs> a review of, of, of the um, Bruce Lee film scores, and the guy came to Game of Death, and his headline was, Boring John Barry is back. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, you know, what is that guy's name again? I want it. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 actually, I, I love Game of Death. I love all the scores. But I have to say, though, Enter the Dragon is fabulous. Yes, yes, it is. Let's... Uh... Let's have a listen to this. Uh, this will bring back memories for many of us, I'm sure, that remember the film and maybe haven't seen it for a while. Uh, enjoy this. This is uh, the main titles from Inner the Dragon, written by Lalo Schifrin.
something else I'd be interested to get your opinion on. Um, I remember towards the end of his career, John Barry used to uh, like to call himself a, a musical dramatist. And, and I loved that description rather than film composer. And, 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 then, and then I would hear him talk about, I guess, two approaches to, to film music, of which I think he did both effectively. Uh, you, could, you could have the music kind of being driven by the characters and what's going on in their mind, what are their emotions, and what are they being faced with, versus what he sometimes called QE music, which was music that more reflected the action that was going on on the screen. Um, first of all, do you, do you concur with that? And, uh, and then I guess, second of all, just, um, talk to me a little bit about that kind of a subject. Uh, you know, who, who's out there that's a good musical dramatist anymore? Well, it's a good phrase, isn't it? And I think the reason that, that John Barry uh, liked that phrase is because I think most composers, they go to music school, they learn how to compose and then, then Hollywood is an outlet for that talent. Uh, I think John is one of the rare few cases that you know uh, that you know he didn't think I want to become a composer and then what do I want to do with this skill? Oh, there's films. I, you know, I, I think you know he was one of the rare few people that always wanted to write music for films. So yeah. you know, he, he his instinct is for the film first, and uh, and I think that served him incredibly well. And to your point about QE music versus what you might call internal music. You know, for me, that there's a superficiality to QE music. Now, that's not to say there's anything wrong with QE music. I mean, John knew how to write QE music. There's a lot oh, of yeah. QE music in his James Bond films, for example, and it is fabulous. Uh, but, there's a, but there's a superficiality to that. Whereas I often felt that, that, that what John Barry always tried to do with the film score is he, he wanted to look into the heart of the people that were going through these emotional journeys. And... Uh, and score what was going on in their heart. And this is why, for example, take Dances with Wolves. You know, superficially, it's a Western. It's, it's about the Western frontier. But he comes to the music of what is going on in the heart of John Dunbar? What's going on um, in the heart of the other characters? You know, what's going on in the heart of Stands with a Fist? Mm-hmm. But, but I, you know, I, I, I got the distinct impression that that's how he looked at a movie. And so if there wasn't, uh, anything to see by looking into the heart of the characters, then, you know, I, I suspect, you know, he probably wouldn't have much to grab hold of. And when you think about a film like The Black Hole, now I love the score of The Black Hole, but, you know, that's not, you can't really look at that film and say, what's going on in Dan Holland's heart? You can't look at that <laughs> film and say, what's going on in, in Hans Reinhardt's heart? So you know, that does become one of those more QE scores, which, which are, you know, it comes away from the people and scores the the mood and the action, but you know when he can look into the heart of the characters in the movie, like he did with Out of Africa, like he did with Somewhere in Time, then you know I, I think that's when when John Barry would produce extra special magic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. The um, the next one in your list is one I'm not even remotely familiar with, so I'm anxious to hear you talk about it. Uh, the film's called uh, Goodbye Gemini. I'm not even sure I know the composer here. Last name Gunning. Christopher uh, Gunning. Tell, yeah. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the uh, uh, about your wanting to include what I don't think is a mainstream movie on your. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I apologize, right. but it's not anything oh. I've heard of. So I'd be <laughs> interested to hear why it made your list. Yeah, it's it's not a mainstream movie. 
fact of the matter is, I, I just love Christopher Gunning. Uh, I, I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to showcase him uh, in this in some way. And Goodbye Gemini is a very interesting movie. It's not a mainstream movie, but it's a very, very interesting movie and a slightly subversive movie as well. It's basically about a brother and a sister who are a little too close. And when somebody comes between them, the, the brother turns a little bit homicidal. Uh, and and she obviously becomes um, you know very scared, uh, and yeah, it, it's um, it's a tragic movie. But the reason I picked it, it's not necessarily because it's one of Christopher Gunning's best, but um, it was it was written in the year that I was born. You know, I, I love Christopher Gunning. I just somehow feel an affinity to this score, mm. and the piece that I've selected again shows a side of film music that that we you know, might easily overlook which is creating great source cues. And that's why I selected this one. It takes place on a houseboat, uh, on, a, on a houseboat in, uh, where, where a party is going on. I just think it's a fabulous piece of music. Okay. Oh. Let's have a listen. And this is uh, from the film Goodbye Gemini, written by Christopher Gunning.
I loved your uh, what you were just saying a little while ago about your your answer to the question who's the best film composer, mm. and and I you know I'd never thought about it in the terms that you provided, but I would I would say that I'm very much kind of on the same wavelength as you on that, and your your last item on the on the list is a. Uh, I guess it was this who you said was the, what was your what, what was the question for on John yeah, Williams so, uh, that he was the I would consider yeah I I said that, that that I think John Williams is the greatest Goldsmith is the best in terms of his range and depth uh, okay and the most important and, and by my favorite and I do think John Williams has a legitimate claim to be the greatest film composer I think his only real rivals to that are probably Max Steiner and Alfred Newman uh, but you know I think he's deserved it because you know. He, more than anybody else, has achieved a combined critical, commercial, and public success. Uh, It's greater than anybody else's. And, you know, I'm just marveling at the fact that he was, uh, I want to say he's close to 90 now, right? Yeah, yeah. uh, And he he actually just conducted a concert, I think, in Europe, uh, literally just like a week or two ago. The fact that he's he's still relatively active and, and still writing scores is just uh, phenomenal. And, uh, and I know there are a lot of people that have very deep affection for him and his music. Yeah. Um, I, I like a lot of his themes, but I, but for overall scores, I usually had a hard time connecting with it, but some of the themes that he's come up with in movies are just iconic and, uh, and fabulous. And the one that you chose is, uh, star Wars. I mean, you can't get more iconic than that. And well, I'm assuming this oh, is, this, this is what is this, is this episode four or I guess the, the, the kind of like the the Star Wars that we all know, the, the theme from that? Well, for me, it will always be just Star Wars. You know, I, I um, the sort of revisionary, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that the episode four tag was added to the film in its re-release, not on its first one, but on, on its first re-release to, to pave the way for Empire Strikes Back. But for me, it will always be just Star Wars. Mm. Um, you know, I, I get a little bit tired of, of adding an extra colon with another subtitle on the end. You know, it's, it's like Star Wars colon episode four colon A New Hope colon the special edition colon version 4.5, whatever we're up to. Uh, but to me, it will always be when it first came out, as you well know, when Star Wars first came out, there was no episode four or that it was just uh, called Star Wars. It was just Star Wars. And it was huge. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I, I honestly think that the, the people who uh, who were um, under the age of 30 probably cannot comprehend how big Star Wars was in 1977. It was huge. Mm-hmm. And to a seven year old boy, which is what I was. In a huge cinema, because remember, this is before the multiplex. So this is before everything got split into multiple screens. So you yeah. had a huge single theater with a stalls and a circle and a huge screen. And to a seven-year-old boy watching that kind of movie, when that kind of movie uh, had not been established, it was massive. It was a ton of fun. It was exciting. The characters were fabulous. And the music was incredible. Uh, you know, I would really? say Star Wars was a major formative experience for me. Um and, you know, and as a little anecdote, when I, I mentioned before that the, the first two records I ever had were big Bond movie themes by Jeff Love and a version of the Star Trek soundtrack. It wasn't actually the original. It was actually one of the, the popular re-recordings mm-hmm. uh, on, on, on budget labels. Uh, but, um, you know, one of my favorite tracks from that LP was, uh, you know, The Death of Ben Kenobi, by the way. You know, way to put a spoiler on the on the on the titles, folks. <laughs> uh, and the Tie Fighter attack. Um, you know, and I, I just played that to get to death. And 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 I I just wanted to finish with with Star Wars because it you know it was massive 
for me in 1977. It was actually 1978 by the time I got to see it, because in actual fact, it was actually quite late coming to England. You know, it, it didn't actually come to England until December 77, if I remember correctly. Oh, wow, I didn't and, realize uh, that, okay. Yeah, and, and, and it didn't get to the regional theaters till, till actually well into 1978. Uh, but it was huge for me. Uh, I love the score. I think John Williams is probably the greatest film composer of all time, and I wanted to give that a platform. Oh, excellent. Let's have a listen to this uh, cue from uh, the film Star Wars, written by the maestro John Williams.
So, Stephen, what's uh, what's on your horizon? What's next for you? Are you? Uh, uh, I know you have. Uh, we have failed to mention the uh, the coaching website and YouTube channel that y'all have. What? Um, tell us a little bit about that because I know that's something you're working on a lot right now yeah well I, I am working to to grow my coaching work as i said i tend to leapfrog with the it consulting work that i, that I tend to do i've got a six-week uh, group coaching program coming up uh, later this month which i've called success with wellness because my particular thing is you know i want people to be successful and to perform and to do great things but i don't want them to burn themselves out doing it and you know the, the, our workplaces are unwell our workplaces are full of, of toxic uh, environment, you know, it, there's stress, there is anxiety. Uh, people are not getting, um, you know, the time that they need. Uh, you know, people are, are you know, they're stressed. And, yeah. and so I, I wanted to do a program uh, which which honors investing in our own personal wellness equally with investing in succeeding with the goals, projects, and work that we're setting out to do. And that's mm-hmm. what success with wellness yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a website, I think, or at least a, a YouTube channel, correct? Yeah, the best place. Uh, you, cause it's often it's difficult reading out URLs over. Uh, well, <laughs> over I can, a, you know, I, uh, to make it easier, send it, uh, send the proper links to me, and, and I'll make a point to uh, to highlight it when we uh, uh, promote the episode. Is that uh, fair enough? No, okay. No. I mean, you know, well, I Stephen, look, I. Sorry, yeah. So I was just going to say, Frank. Yeah, I, I can read out the the you know the basic website. It's theswcoaching.com. Uh, that's the easiest way to, to to try and find all my other stuff. Okay. And uh, by the way, folks, I would highly encourage you if that sounds like a, a topic that you could benefit from or that you have an interest in. Uh, I, I say this from personal experience and having looked at and watched uh, some of Stephen's work. You would. It, it's fabulous. He's doing some wonderful things that I have no doubt could end up uh, making a big impact on your life. So I want to encourage you to please, please investigate uh, if that's something that you feel you would benefit from. Uh, I certainly have. I can't thank you enough. This has been, uh, like I said, we've never met, but it, it's, it, but it's like we've been old friends for years. And uh, uh, I, I really uh, am so grateful to have finally had the chance to, to talk to you about our favorite topic. And uh, it's been great fun for me, and I hope for you. I, yeah, absolutely, Frank. Great fun for me, too. Thank you, Frank. Bless you. Thank you ever so much. I really appreciate the chance to speak and uh, you know, talk about these topics. Oh, well, excellent. Well, that's uh, that's going to wrap it up for us today, then. Uh, again, our thanks to our guest, Stephen Wilson, for uh, joining us. Um, that's, like I say, going to wrap it up. So there's only thing, only one thing left to say, and that's this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?